Exactly 78 years ago today, Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy in what is now known as D-Day. Today, I have the distinct honor and privilege of speaking to somebody who was there, somebody who fought and defended our freedom in Canada. I'm Candace Malcolm, and welcome to a very special edition of The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. So today, June 6th, is D-Day, also known as the Day of Courage. On June 6th, 1944, after months of planning, the Allied forces launched what was called Operation Overlord, the invasion of Western Europe, which had suffered under Nazi occupation for four years. At the time, the Allied forces were fighting across Italy, but with one foul swoop, the Allied armies created a new Western Front against Hitler's forces designed to ease pressure from the Eastern Front and weaken the Nazi war efforts. Operation Overlord, which was launched on D-Day, June 6th, was a coordinated attack against the Nazis along the beaches of Normandy, a 100-kilometer stretch of the French coastline across the English Canal from Great Britain. At the time, it was the largest seaborne invasion in military history. Allied infantry and armored divisions from Canada, the U.S., and Great Britain began landing on the coast of France at 6.30 a.m. The Normandy coast was divided into five sectors, Utah and Omaha, where the Americans landed, Gold and Sword, where the British landed, and Juneau, where our Canadian troops launched and were landed. As you might imagine, the young men who landed there were under heavy fire from gun emplacements overlooking the beaches, and the shore was mined and covered with obstacles such as wooden stakes, metal tripods, and barbed wires, making the work of the beach clearing teams difficult and dangerous. Canada suffered some 961 casualties on that one morning while disembarking at Juneau Beach. The Normandy landings marked an unprecedented war effort, unmatched at the time. There were nearly 5,000 landing and assault craft vessels carrying approximately 160,000 troops who crossed the English Channel on D-Day, with 875,000 men disembarking by the end of June, including 14,000 Canadians. Allied casualties on the first day alone were 10,000, with 4,414 confirmed dead. Now, of course, this turned out to be a major turning point in the war, and by the end of August 1944, the Allies had reached the Seine River, Paris was liberated, and the Germans began retreating and were removed from northwest France, effectively concluding the Battle of Normandy. The Allied forces then prepared to enter Germany, where they would meet up with Soviet troops entering from the east. Again, the Normandy invasion began to turn the tide against the Nazis, a significant psychological blow. It prevented Hitler from sending troops from France to build up his eastern front against the advancing Soviets. The following spring, on May 8th, 1945, the Allied forces accepted the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany, and the efforts of the Canadians and the Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy were a clear turning point in the war and in the effort against fascism in Italy. Now today for this very special edition of the Candace Malcolm Show, I'm just so delighted to be joined by someone who was there, someone who fought and nearly died, someone who saw it all with their own eyes to defend Canada. I'm speaking with Mr. Jim Parks. He is a true Canadian hero. Mr. Parks enlisted in the Canadian military at the age of 10. 
He joined the cadets, and then at the age of 16, two years before he was eligible to enlist, Parks joined the Royal Winnipeg Rifles. After enlisting, Mr. Parks began his training, first in Canada and then in the UK, which would last more than two years. Jim had five brothers who served in the Second World War, and his father and his uncle both served in the First World War. So there he was on June 6, 1944, exactly 78 years ago. Today, he was part of the very first wave of Canadian soldiers to land on Juno Beach in Normandy, France, and heroically beat the Germans. Mr. Parks and his fellow soldiers would eventually push the Germans town by town over the months with intense fighting that would result in significant Canadian casualties. By the war's end, Mr. Parks would find himself in Germany, having successfully liberated the Netherlands and pushing the Nazis into total defeat. After the war, Jim and other soldiers spent time in the Netherlands and England before heading back home to Canada. He would continue to serve his country and his community after the war, first as a fireman in Winnipeg, and then he worked in various roles for the federal government in administrative and managerial positions. Jim retired from the military after 15 years in the reserves, and he made his way up to the rank of major. He now asks people to commit good deeds in support of the memory of the men who served alongside him. He wants people to participate in virtual walks to raise money for veterans' causes and organizations like the Juno Beach Center. Jim now lives in Mount Albert, Ontario, with his wife Genevieve. There are very few Canadians who deserve the recognition and honor as a true Canadian hero, more so than Mr. Jim Parks, my guest today. We are extremely lucky to have him on the show. So, Mr. Parks, thank you so much for joining our podcast. Thank you for being with us today. How are you doing? Pretty good. Great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your experiences were like 78 years ago on D-Day when you were part of the invasion storming the beaches of Normandy? Well, that was, uh, we had a lot of preparation for that, uh, for the D-Day itself. And, uh, and I recall the, uh, leading up to that, we, uh, we were, we were put on boats at Portsmouth, which is the southern part of England. That's where we, and I was on a landing craft tank, which is a bigger one, because I was with the mortar platoon, and we had two mortar carriers, which, uh, and we were, uh, we were lined up behind two armored bulldozers on the landing craft tank. And we were supposed to go into uh, the beach two minutes ahead of the infantry assault boats, because the armored bulldozers had big ropes on them with hooks. And when they could come off the landing craft, they were to pull off all the obstacles in the water, which would allow the landing craft to come in, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be uh, hitting the, uh, the obstacles. However, that, uh, that's the way it was. We're supposed to be two minutes ahead of them, but uh, the way things worked out, it, uh, we all got mixed up. And we, got, uh, we were mixed up with the uh, landing craft coming in, and the uh, bulldozers, they... Uh, they were they were a little late little late getting clean those uh, obstacles of the water, but the when they went off when they went off the landing craft, the uh, it uh, the landing craft got fouled up, and our our carriers when we went off the uh, landing craft, the water was too deep and we we sank. The water was about eight feet deep and it was a uh, was about uh, six eight feet when you figure out the waves, and the. Uh, when you get close to the shore, it's rougher, and uh, so we end up instead of having, coming on on the shore with with two mortar carriers, we end up swimming in instead. The mortar carriers were in, under the water, so I end up on the beach. And uh, the first thing I got to the beach, I I plopped beside this. Uh, I knew this corporal, 
Corporal's tape, he'd be mortally wounded. So I picked up I picked up a Sten gun from him because I lost all my equipment going in. And uh, then I headed for the sand dunes and waited for the rest of our, our crew to come in. It took a little while because there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of noise and a lot of uh, a lot of firing going on and the uh, they although the machine gun fire being being put down, there's a lot of mortar bombs still landing from the the enemy had mortars uh, further inland and they were popping the bombs onto the beach, so we had to take cover quite a bit. Otherwise, we uh, we were kind of lucky too because the the sand would absorb quite a bit of the uh, the shock of the bombs landing and take up a bit of the shrapnel. But uh, it was still pretty dangerous. So we got to the uh, sand dune itself, and the rest of the uh, platoon come in. They were okay because they, they got further in, and they still had their carriers. We we'd lost ours. So uh, we, uh, we scooted in past about, was a, once you got past the sand dunes, it was a little bit quieter. Because the uh, the enemy had their had their their positions a little bit further inland to take care of the beach, the beach party itself were overwhelmed pretty quickly. When I say beach party, the beach party of the enemy, and what they had a little bit uh, further back. So that first part we got in was a little bit a little bit quieter. When I say quieter, there was a little less machine gun fire and mortar fire, and we. Uh, we made our way. The first the first day was a, a little quieter, a little bit quieter because of the snipers, except for snipers. And we got to a village called Puto, P-U-T-O-T, Puto in Besson, and that was a small village. So we got in around there, and we we were dug in, and we uh, prepared for said prepared for the uh, counterattack, and. We had our own troops are a little slow getting in behind us. We, we had the reinforcements coming in, but they got held up. The weather was a little bit bad and the, the beach a bit rough, but they finally got in. And uh, on it, we were there for the first night. It was fairly quiet except for snipers. On the 8th of June, the enemy launched a, a counterattack. It was the 12th SS Panzer Division. Uh, Panzers are tanks. So they had their tanks coming in and the uh, a little bit rough around Puto because uh, they uh, they were over they were overrun and we were we were mixed up with the uh, with the enemy. You go around one corner, you spot them, and uh, they seemed to be popping up everywhere because the uh, the wheat field was about four feet deep. Which this is June, and the grain was a bit higher, so they were infiltrating through the uh, the, the wheat field. So it was a little bit rough there for the uh, for the seventh and eighth. The eighth is when the big counterattack came in, and we uh, we got overrun by the SS. Like I said, the the tanks and the uh, and the infantry, and it was pretty rough going there for a bit. And uh, until they, we launched a counterattack uh, by the Canadian Scottish and other units and helped push them back. So uh, we had to reestablish ourselves around the village of of Pluto. Got pretty rough that first uh, the first day or two. So we lost a lot of people on the beach. Uh, I think we lost over close to 150 on the beach, killed and wounded. And then we uh, we got a few reinforcements in that night, and we didn't get a chance to spread them out. So they were they were end up dugging in. We were digging in a trench, and they come around and they said, "Make room for somebody else." So they we had a 
instead of being only two in a trench, we had three in a trench. So what we did is we, we got out of the trench and helped them dig their own hole because it's a little too crowded when you get two in a tr three in a trench. It's only made for two. So it was pretty rough because they, a lot of shell fire was coming in and there's a lot of machine gun fire. So uh, uh, we were hoping that uh, we we get some tanks coming in. But the tanks did come in, but we, we not near us. They're, they're in the area surrounding us, but not near us. That was our own tanks. But the enemy had their their tanks. They had the uh, they had the taggers and they had the Mark IVs. So uh, it was pretty rough. You didn't sometimes you didn't know around the corner whether your own people were there or whether the uh, the Jerry's were there. So you had to be careful where, where you go around. So we were told to dig in and prepare for the major counterattack, which we did. And by that time, we had more troops coming in, which helped out. And uh, we were relieved because they went forward of, of us. And then that meant, meant we were reserved. After the first day and a half, we were at the front. And then we become a reserve, which is about 100 yards, 200 yards behind them. So prepared to uh, to counterattack them if they, they broke through. That's how it was pretty rough that first, like you say, the first two days. Well, Mr. Parks, it's incredible your recollection and your memory of this event that happened over 75 years ago. Uh, can you tell us, tell the viewers, how old were you at the time? I was 19 at the time. Yeah, just, uh, as I joined when I was 15, a lot of the time at the, you must remember that was just after the Depression years and there's a lot of people out of work and so on and so forth. And uh, so it was, as soon as the war broke out, all the young kids were running down to the recruiting office saying, I'm 18, you're only 15 or 16, but they're saying 18 and, and they're, they, they didn't bother checking. They were just glad to have you. So we had to you look around, you you see pictures of what we look like. You didn't fool anybody because you, you look 15 and 16 and you right. were supposed to be 18 and 19. But the uh, when you look at it, the, a lot of the young soldiers at the time were underage. In the, uh, in the initial people, initial part of the war, there was a thing to do to, to join up, and the, the parents didn't mind because one less one less mouth to feed, I guess, because that that was depression years. It was hard to hard to find jobs and hard to uh, you, you were at school, but it was a little rough at school because that uh, you you didn't have that much at school, you know, you bare necessities and so on. But we uh. We got along. Nobody starved. <laughs> That's great. Well, your your daughter sent me your bio, Mr. Parks, and it seems like D-Day was your very first uh, taste of the war. It was your first day in battle, and everything up until then uh, was more training. So what was that like uh, for your very first glimpse of, of active battle being such a monumental moment and a turning point? Uh, in, in the war like that. Did, did you realize the scope and the importance of D-Day at the time? Well, actually, and I remember I remember there was one sergeant of us. He was a he was sort of a gung-ho guy. And he, uh, he after going in on the beach, he was uh, this, this, he was saying, this is it, this is it. We're going to go get him. We're going to go and get him. We're going to go get him. And, I, and we're, the rest of us sitting saying, wondering what the heck's going to go on. Because once they dropped that, that uh, ramp at the front, you had to dash out. Eh? You had to move out with your mortar carriage and so on. But like I said, our our uh, our boat was hit, so 
we ended up swimming in. So uh, then we eventually got to the beach and we got picked up that sten gun off Corporal Scape who'd been, uh, who'd been wounded, badly wounded. He died. He died of his wounds. And I, we, I got to the sand dune. And uh, a few minutes later, our, our platoon commander, they come in with their mortar carriers and we just jumped on the back of their carriers uh, to be with them because we lost everything going in. We lost our carriers, we lost everything, we all had to swim in. So it was a little bit rougher. So, so for the next uh, next while, we were extra people on those carriers, and they said we would get uh, we'd get our new equipment within a matter of a uh, couple of days, but we never got it for about three weeks. Instead of getting a carrier to give us a fifteen hundred weight truck, which is which wasn't very good to carry your mortars with, and uh, but it was better than nothing. And so what happened next? So you, you made it past Juno Beach and up into, into the inlands in, in Normandy. How long did you stay in Europe? And, and what, 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 did you, what was your next role after that? Well, you actually got to tow. We end up in a place called Carpiquet, which is, a, which is a, an airport. It was an airport. Was a, the Germans had used it uh, prior to the invasion. They used that as a, as a staging point. They'd, they'd pop in there on the way to... A, bombing when they stop in and get gas and so on and they they fly over to England and so we uh, we got past that part and we got into a place called Caen the city of Caen but that wasn't easy because uh, we spent about uh, oh a few weeks before we got into Caen in fact the, uh, the Germans have put up a pretty good defensive perimeter and they had all kinds of uh, they had their they had the uh, SS tanks and they had the uh, had the guns and they had very well equipped, and we had to they had to mount a major defensive offensive to get uh, to get past Con. I think it took about eight or nine weeks before we got out of Con. Con was only about twelve miles inland from uh, from the beach, right? Then, but my, my, in the meantime, uh, all of Normandy was just getting stacked up with all kinds of a uh, of uh, army equipment and guns and tanks and everything else and set for the major offensive. And uh, we did a stage two or three major offensive before they, before they broke through the, uh, broke down the German, uh, the German uh, defensive line. And then we got past Con up to a place called Falay. And the Falay was uh, the breaking point. And uh, they finally, uh, the Germans after Falay, they, they sort of on the run, they, they made their way back to, to the, uh, it's a big river, the big river they call the Rhine. It's not the Rhine, but the, uh, I forgot what river it's called, the Rhone. It's, uh, it was quite a, quite a deal. But that first eight to nine weeks was, was rough, rough going. Everybody had a lot of casualties. We had a lot of equipment was lost and so on. They, they put up a pretty brave, pretty brave front there. They had a lot of equipment. But what wore them down was our, our Air Force. The Air Force come over and they were doing a lot of bombing. And the, uh, the fighter fighter planes had rockets, and they did a lot of rocket firing. So it's uh, it's amazing that they held out so long with all that that continuing firing that they had against them. They couldn't move at all. In fact, one one of their generals was uh, he was driving back in his car, and a and a, a fighter plane came over, and it, uh, it by firing it, it, it the car took a base of action, ended up in a ditch, and it, 
their major one of the major generals was uh, was badly uh, badly hurt, and that uh, you, you take some of their major generals away from a from an army, you have nobody to lead them. So the leaders weren't as good. So that helped that helped us quite a bit. Just, that's looking back at uh, at what they said later, be able to read up why it makes such a difference. So what, what kept you going then, Mr. Parks, and what motivated you to continue the, the fight during some of the darkest days of those battles? Well, you're, you're, you're working as a group, and you, you, everybody works as a team, and you look to the other guy, and he looks to you, and as long as he keeps going, you're going to keep going. Like I say, this one guy that we had, Tommy Plum, was quite a character. He was, uh, he was always uh, gung-ho, and he was, uh, he, was a, he was one of our sergeants, and Jimmy Stewart, another good sergeant. We had pretty good NCOs, and they, uh, they, they provide, uh, provide a good incentive. And we were lucky because we had uh, the leaders they picked prior to the going in to prove that they were good leaders when we hit the battle, because it all turned out pretty good. And we lost quite a few the first uh, first few weeks to killed and wounded, so uh, we had to have a good backup. So that meant the uh, the the junior NCOs would move over and take over the senior NCOs job when they got wounded or killed in action. We lost quite a few that first uh, that first while because uh, when I when I go over there to visit cemeteries, most of the people I know are buried in the are buried in Normandy. When you go further back to Grosbeek in Germany, I don't know as many, but most of the people I do know, if I go by the graves in, in Normandy itself, I recognize more people because they were with us quite a few, quite a few years in Canada and in England. We lost quite a few in that first, uh, first few weeks in Normandy. What was, what was life like for you after you returned uh, from the war, and, and what was it like to, to come back to Canada after all this? When you come back to Canada, I, I always call, I look back afterwards, and I I call that the year of the lost souls. Because you don't, you, you come back, you've been so used to being active and and and, and uh, being involved in so much, and here you are, you're, you're coming into into civilian life, and uh, everything's quieter, and it's pretty hard to get adjusted. And uh, some people it's easy to get adjusted, but if, if you're at the front and being, being in action all the time, it was a little different from somebody that being, say, stationed in Canada and being in a base, they could adjust easier. Where a person being in Europe, being in action, being at the front or being, say, the Air Force too, being in fighting in a, the aircraft and so on, be kind of hard for the all those type of people to readjust to uh, so the momentum was so different. Like I said, I call it the year of the lost souls, the year of re trying to get readjusted to life. It was kind of difficult. And uh, I remember that, that first year you'd go down in Winnipeg. Uh, that Winnipeg at that time, uh, if you go to a, a bar, it was only for men only and no ladies were allowed. And the place was just jammed full of, uh, of XOX servicemen. And drinking one one glass of beer after another and refighting the battle, you know, a lot of them were lies, a lot of them were good stories too. But uh, it was uh, quite a bit of adjusting to do, and they, they had all kinds of systems set up, but it, it wasn't that easy. I 
it took me a while to get them. Uh, they had all these programs set up, but I, I couldn't take advantage of them at the time because I wasn't ready to be. I, I ended up about four years later, decided to, to, uh, to start to do things on my own, you know, taking night courses and so on and so forth. And I was, uh, I didn't realize at the time because I had a, because I had a disability from the war, I was eligible for, to, to get courses free, but I was paying for the courses on my own four years later. If you, if you did the, your first discharge, you're allowed two, two years to take advantage of any courses. It was free of charge. But after two years, you had to pay for it. That's how they worked it. Interesting. And so I see that you're involved with something called the Memory Project. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what your role has been with this with this uh, project? Well, you're on call. Like, so people would like to, uh, like schools or organizations, they want the uh, people to come forward and, and describe their experiences in World War II. And so uh, I, I, with a friend of mine, we, uh, we got a power, we put a PowerPoint together after a while, and he did a very good job of putting up uh, some, some uh, shots of World War II, and I incorporated my own discussions with it. And I'd go to a school, go to a school or an organization, and I'd play this, and I was able to talk with it. And I had this, uh, you know, you how you have this little light you, you point at the uh, at the screen and so on, and you highlight the uh, the messages, and you're able to describe the, the the action a lot better than just pulling out from the memory. This is incite your memory. My memory got pretty good after a while because I, you got to recollect quite a few things. You know, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't bring in all the blood and guts. You just bring in the generalizations, and you uh, describe all the uh, actions and uh, whatever you could do. And so, uh, what is the message that you have when you speak to schools? You speak to students. You speak to young Canadians. Uh, what is it that you think is important that they know about what you lived through, uh, what the Second World War was fought for, and, and what Canada uh, means to you? Well, what it means is that uh, just cherish what they have. Look around what they've got. They're able to walk. They're able to get a job where they want. They're able to travel where they want. They can uh, do what they want each day, get up, they take what job they want. But they have the, they have the freedom of choice. It's a matter of preparing themselves for that choice. And they, they stick at the advantage of that. Uh, don't take it for granted. Just, just, uh, just realize what you have and utilize every, every aspect you can of your energy and your education to do the best you can to make a living. What, you've got your whole life ahead of you. You've got to prepare for it. You've got to make sure you get a good foundation. And you've got to look ahead. Prepare yourself or not only the next year, but look ahead a bit and say, well, how am I preparing today so I'm better off next year and the year after? Like if you, you're looking forward to uh, when you first get started, you get married, or you want to get a you want to get a house, how are you going to you have to plan ahead of time, how are you going to plan to get that, where are you going to go? And in the meantime, you've got your own job, you're preparing, your, you're preparing yourself in your own job, and you're you're improving yourself in education and work habits so you get ahead in your job and earn more money because it wasn't without earning the money you're not going to go anywhere you got to get a good foundation of, of uh, work habits and education 
Well, that's, that's such a wonderful message, Mr. Parks. We really appreciate your time. Um, thank you so much for everything you've done for Canada. Uh, it's really incredible to get to talk to you, uh, knowing you know the sacrifices that you made, where you were, the importance of your role in, in shaping the country that we now enjoy and that we're so privileged to live in. So thank you so much for, for joining the podcast. God bless you. And uh, thank you again for everything. Well, thank you very much. It'd be nice talking to you. All right. Have a great day. Thank you so much, sir. Yeah, bye. It's, it's an incredible story, and we appreciate Mr. Parks' time. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm. This has been a very special edition of The Candace Malcolm Show. Mm-hmm.